Hello everybody and welcome once again to Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. To Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction, your favourite podcast about all things weird and East Anglian. Hello, I'm here with Chris today. Hello. We're doing a little mini stranger, it's been a while. We've been mainly on the big boys lately, haven't we? You know, the big boy episodes. But today we're here with a small boy. Okay, yes. A tiny sibling, if you will. Today we will have a tale of an eccentric fellow, because I thought it's been a while since we've had a story about an eccentric character. And why on earth did you decide to do this with me? <laughs> well, you know, it's just short. Oh. <laughs> but shall we, because it's hot and we've got a drink mm. and I'm worried all the ice cubes are melting. And this is a Norfolk story. And so what we've got today is a new sort of a gin that we haven't tried before that Naked Wine sent me it for being six years a member of Naked Wine. Six years of booze hound. Six years of booze hound, exactly. They said what you need is more booze and stronger. So it's called Gyron Gimble Coastal Gin. Right. I guess Gyron Gimble is from the Jabberwocky. Oh, is it? Well, it's in the uh, the Gyron Gimble in the Wabe. Oh, okay. Great. So it's coastal gin, salt water infused. Mm. Shall we try? Yeah, go on then. Have a sip. We've got it with tonic. Do you feel salty? I don't think so, especially. I think it's got a tiny salty tang. Maybe mm. if we had less tonic. Um, also, I put a wedge of lime in because that's our customary thing. But I feel like it should be something more coastal. Kelp. A stick of samphire. <laughs> something a bit more salty. Yeah, like maybe. a salty breeze. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to uh, turn up at a fancy Norfolk eatery. And have a samphire in your gin. Somewhere like, you know, down the market. Yeah. And somebody's put samphire in your gin. I don't think I'd be against it. <laughs> I'm going to try that next time. Um, also, this gin comes in a... I believe that the makers pride themselves on their environmentally friendly practices. And it's not in a glass bottle. It's in like a paper bottle. I'm going to say that's not a bottle. It's, I can't really understand how it works. It must have some coating on the inside so the gin doesn't just... Well, isn't the gin in like a goon sack on the inside? Oh, it could be in a goon sack. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's then probably it, worse for the environment and it's than very just light. Well, no, I'm sure they've <laughs> thought it through. Anyway, here we will drink our Gyron Gimble Coastal Gin and imagine it's got a stick of samphire and a swirl of kelp mm. inside. And there's mm. a, a strange light to this evening as well, isn't there, as we sit here recording, which uh, we can imagine we're on a clifftop. It is a no, strange No, there's no clifftops in Norfolk. We can imagine we're on a... A windy field. Yeah, exactly, on the, on the <laughs> edge of the Norfolk shore. The crepuscular light is kind of rainy, sunny weather, and then the light's got like a strange yellow air to mm. it, I would say, which is not unpleasant. Right, eccentric characters. Yes. Today we will hear about Dr. Messenger Monzi. Right. Um, that the name his parents gave him? It was the name, his so his surname Monzi, right. fine. And then he was named after a friend of his father's called August Messenger. Oh, so surname for first name. Surname for first name, but I don't feel like August is a proper name either. <laughs> Maybe that the pattern perpetuated itself through yeah. time. Yeah, so it is, it's an unusual name. And he was a man of unusual habits. What is the etymology of Monzi? 
No idea. That's not a Norfolk name, is it? I don't know. It sounds Italian. No, M O N S E Y. Oh, it was like Ponzi. Or Montessori, like, uh, you were thinking. M O N Z I. He was known to be a man of odd and unseemly habits and impolite behaviour. He grew up in Norfolk and was a graduate of Cambridge, but was described as a strange, gross man. <laughs> as having a viperous tongue and being known to wear a rusty wig, dirty boots and leather breeches. How does a wig go rusty? I suppose it was dirty, they mean. A dirty wig. <laughs> I know when you live by the sea, you know, all manner of things go rusty, but it's mostly still metal. He wasn't even by the sea. Oh, well, no excuse. Portraits from the time show a man with a strange, long, sagging face and baggy skin. I've got some pictures to show Chris and he's going to describe Monzi to us. <laughs> There's one from the National Portrait Gallery that has a good engraving and then there's a sketch by Gilray from the Welcome Collection. Because he was a figure of note. Right. So there are some pictures of him. Because I imagined he was going to be like a, a quack doctor. Well, Chris Ooh. will describe. Well, the picture on the left looks almost like a, a kind of Mervyn Peake illustration. A kind of grotesque from the uh, the Mervyn Peake universe. <laughs> His face is long and saggy and it strange, is isn't yeah, it? it? And he also looks a bit, yeah, very, very wrinkled. Mm, he uh, was probably old by then, but still. A bit like a White Walker from uh, Game of Thrones, <laughs> but in a hat and wig. And then the picture to the right... Well, that's a caricature, because I say, that looks like it's kind of from Punch, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And that's he's, he's more wig than face in that. <laughs> and very, very tall and thin. Yeah, so... Got a sort kind of, of Abraham Lincoln-type stature. So that's Messenger Monzi. What of his childhood? <laughs> What of it? What of it? Young Messenger grew up in Whitwell, Norfolk, the okay. son of a reverend. Right. He was born in 1693. Mm -hmm. As already said, he was named after a friend of his father's called August Messenger. He graduated with a medical degree from Cambridge in 1711, Pembroke. He was then admitted to the Royal College of Physicians in 1723. And at some point thereafter, he settled to practice his trade in Bury St Edmunds. Oh. He lived with his wife and a daughter called Charlotte. Things pottled along in a sort of reasonable way for him. But all that was to change. Is that just that there's a whole period of his life about which you know nothing, so you just assumed? Well, sure. From this moment on, I don't okay. really have dates for anything. Okay. It's just, you know, Royal College of Physicians, 1723. At that age, he's 30 by now. Right. And then the rest of his life is about to unfold. <laughs> that was the day... The day his life changed was the day he was called to Newmarket to attend to the second Earl of Godolphin, who had been taken ill at the races. I was going to say Godolphin is the uh, racehorse family, isn't it? From Newmarket. The oh, I don't... I, the Godolphin family is yeah, okay. big horse Horse family. people. Yeah. So the second Earl of Godolphin had been taken ill at the races with a bout of apoplexy. Oh, apoplectic. Do you know so what like, that is? I, well, now I stop and think about it. No. Do you think it's a rage? That's what I think of. Apoplectic is the adjective to describe a kind of rage, isn't mm. it? We must have a little medical chat today. Oh, okay. So I thought, I don't even know what apoplexy is no. in a medical sense. I thought only of a furious rage. And I thought, you don't call a doctor for that, do you? Well, maybe a uh, doctor of your mental health. Yes, a special doctor. But no, that's not what struck the Earl of Godolphin that day at the races. So apoplexy was used at the time to describe what we now call a stroke. Oh, okay caused by internal rupture and hemorrhaging. Mm. It was also, though, used to describe a loss of consciousness right. of some kind. Right. So perhaps it wasn't always quite as serious as a stroke. Anyway, whatever the case, the Earl made a full recovery. And I don't know whether this was down to Monzi's 
expert ministrations or whether he just got lucky <laughs> and recovered and it was fine. Maybe he was just drunk. <laughs> just fell off his seat. Oh, just passed went, to, out. went to sleep. Francis Godolphin was quite a fancy man. Oh, yeah. You say from a horse family. Well, yeah, as I say, they, the Godolphin stables in Newmarket exists to this day. I don't mm. really know anything about horse racing, but I always assumed... It was a, a more exotic name than it being, you know, long-time resident of the area. Of the area yeah, but. He was um, a courtier to the king. He was an ex-member of parliament. Oh. He had been first a Tory and then a Whig. Right. Since 1712, Francis Godolphin had been a member of the House of Lords. More Whigs. More Whigs. Whigs everywhere we look in these days. He was also a philanthropist and was one of the founding governors of the Foundling Hospital in London. Oh, yeah. Which was set up to look after yeah. orphan children and yeah, things. I've been there. Is that the one? You know, sometimes when we go to London... And there's that place where there's a pipe. A pipe? A pipe. Oh. And in the old days, no, the pipe the pipe goes from the street. Yeah. A small pipe. And it goes from the street and it directs down into a building. And it's an old building. So people could put coins into the pipe. I don't think it is. Isn't the Founding Museum near Russell Square? Yes. So the pipe is something different. I think the pipe is somewhere else. The pipe is like a different hospital or a different foundation of some kind. I'll try and find out where the pipe is. You can still fling money into the pipe if you want. I think it goes into a collection box at the other side. And that's always been the way. That's always been the purpose of the pipe. Yeah. Right. The pipe was set up for, for donations in that manner. Anonymous donations. So, Godolphin was around 15 years or so older than Dr. Monzi, but apparently the two found in each other a kindred spirit and were seen firm friends. This was to commence Messenger Monzi's unlikely ascent into London society. A provincial Norfolk man flung into the upper echelons of the English classes. Oh dear, did they laugh at his accent? They were appalled, they laughed, they loved him in some ways, in other ways they hated him. We will hear more now. <laughs> <laughs> so Lord Godolphin became something of a patron, and when Messenger's wife died, Godolphin encouraged him to move to London, found him a position at Chelsea Hospital. Right. He also began introducing him to his friends. Such high flyers and eminent figures as Sir Robert Walpole. Oh, yeah. First Prime Minister of Great Britain. Was Walpole the first Prime Minister? Well, I didn't think this could be the case, but apparently it is. Because before that, it was the old rump parliament and things, wasn't it? It was Lord Protector and all that malarkey. And then Charles II came back. So we're talking about the 1700s, aren't we? Early 1700s. Yeah, 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 exactly. It feels like we should have had Prime Ministers for longer than that, doesn't it? Only 300 years of Prime Ministers. I feel like I've had enough in the last few years. <laughs> we've, we've crammed at least 20% of those Prime Ministers into the last three years. The total amount. The Earls of Chesterfield and Bath. Lovely. The writer Samuel Johnson became an acquaintance. The actor David Garrick. Oh, yes. The and Garrick more. Theater. And more. Walpole was himself a Norfolk man, and it seems that the unlikely pair got on quite well. Oh, right, yeah. And used to play billiards together. Tales of Oh, those fields, they said. <laughs> Those Norfolk fields. Put some more salt in my gin, please. <laughs> Stir it with a lump of samphire, old Walpole. Probably Walpole was monzying. Monzie was stirring. Walpole was directing. <laughs> monzying. It could become a, a verb. Sounds like an internet bank. Now, Polly Howitt, in her book Tales of Old Norfolk, talks about Monzie. Oh, yeah. This is where I learned about him. Polly Howitt says that the doctor was not necessarily a popular man. Mm but was frequently invited to dinner parties and other soirees because the denizens of London society were, I quote, enthralled by his bad dress sense, <laughs> terrible table manners 
and acerbic wit. What a combo. I know. Monzi continued to act just as he had in the provinces, as they thought of Norfolk, speaking often in a plain manner that some found offensive. He had an ongoing feud with the actor Garrick, and on one occasion at dinner called Mrs Garrick a confounded little toad because she hadn't served his chicken quick enough. I'm going to remember that one. He also frequently scandalised Samuel Johnson, apparently, with his coarse manners and sharp tongue. And he used to play up at parties because he knew that Samuel Johnson couldn't stand it. So whenever Johnson was near, he would exaggerate even more his coarse (laughs) manner and his impolite ways. Just for his own personal amusement. For his amusement, and I imagine those around him. Because I imagine Samuel Johnson to be a pompous man. Well, that's because you're thinking of Robbie Coltrane in Blackadder. I know, but that must have been based in fact. (laughs) Robbie Coltrane did extensive research. Yes, I imagine him pompous. What do you think? Yeah, probably. If you think that you... If you've invented the dictionary. Exactly. If you feel like your definition of a word is going to be, that's it now. The definitive definition. You must be a pompous man. Yeah, probably. But did he feel that? We don't know if he did feel that about his words. What did he think about apoplexy? Well, maybe he was just putting it there because no one else had. You know, oh God, somebody's got to define all these words. I guess it's going to be me. It might have been a horrible, like, Herculean task. Well, it was probably. Yeah. We know how they tried to rewrite the dictionary in Blackadder. It was very difficult. (laughs) Very difficult indeed. An account on the website of the Royal College of Physicians says, As a physician, he adhered to the tenets of the Burhavian school and despised modern improvements in theory and practice. Like cleaning your hands before you operate. (laughs) I don't think they even started that for another hundred years or so. It's probably Monzi's fault. He uniformly prescribed contra-yerva and tisan. He adhered to the rules and systems merely because they were sanctioned by 60 years' experience. Now, I feel like you're going to have to go back and do I a know, fair bit of definition. I know, because what the actual this. shit does any of that mean? <laughs> Behoovian what? The Bohavian school. Let's right. start with it. Okay. So I think this refers to the use of a specific plant that was believed to have medicinal properties, Bohavia diffusa. Right. Historically, this was used as a bit of a catch-all herbal remedy. Pain relief treatment of respiratory problems, anti-ageing, <laughs> generally as a kind of preventative measure Is this a plant I would recognise today? I don't think so. Oh, I, don't I thought you were so. going to say, and it turns out... It's, it's... just cow parsley! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't know. It's used in the Indian Ayurveda alternative medicine system, mm. apparently. In the context of Monzi, though, adhering to mm. them saying he adhered to the Bohavian school, I think it means he used a lot of those kind of old-fashioned... Right. Plant herbal remedies. Right, okay. Um, so that, that wasn't necessarily the preeminent school of thought at the time. No, no. And I think basically he clung to those old-fashioned forms of medicine, even in the face of kind of lots right. of... science. In, yeah, you know, there was a, a leaps and bounds in, in medical practice at the time. And we talked before about the kind of anatomy schools and the body snatching Mm. and things and there were huge advances being made in the understanding of the human body and disease and the human body but no Monzi did not care for this (laughs) he didn't care for these newfangled ideas he was like I've given people these leaves smashed up into a paste and smeared onto their body for years yeah I'm gonna keep doing it anyone any harm Exactly. So he didn't move with the times. I think that's the gist. In other ways, he was also unorthodox. He was a Christian, but he eschewed the idea of the Holy Trinity. Um, isn't that just Catholics? <laughs> what that say I about the, the Holy, Holy Trinity? Trinity? I think I don't think the older Protestants care about the Holy Trinity, do they? I think you still have the Holy Trinity, do you? don't you? Well, he said it well, was a an... Holy Ghost. Maybe it is only Catholics. 
No. Oh, dear. <laughs> what ignorance we display. Yeah. Anyway, he said that it was a nonsense of worshipping three gods. Right. He saw it as being like a deviation from smash, smash them all together. one true god. Save yourself a bit of time. Politically, he was convinced that Britain was on the brink of ruin, <laughs> well, um, calling the British yeah. as a whole a set of infamous blackguards and dissolute, luxurious scoundrels. And he thought that basically at some point soon the country was going to like rise right. up in revolt and everything would be a disaster right. and society would crumble. Again, doesn't feel that dissimilar today, does it? <laughs> so we might gather from all this that Dr. Messenger Monzi was quite forthright. Yep. I think we can say stubborn, yep. obstreperous, set on his own way of doing things and hang the rest of them. Would you call him a prig? I don't think he's a prig. No. No, I think Johnson's a prig. I think if anything, you hate Johnson. I don't, <laughs> I don't hate Johnson. I don't think he's a prig. I just think he's kind of a sort of stubborn old fellow, right. from the sound of it. But I don't think he's a prig, and we're going to hear some more stories which okay. will disavow the prig idea. I think. I also think he was quite amusing, probably quite good company in the right circumstances, yeah. and certainly one of the more interesting people you might have met at these tiresome London parties. Next, we can hear a story about how he approached the subject of dental care. <laughs> Again, why have you particularly chosen to speak to me about this? You, <laughs> Chris has a bad history of dental care. I don't have a bad history of dental care. Well, you had a traumatic a childhood. You had a traumatic childhood of many braces. Extractions. How many braces? Nine. Nine different braces. Yeah. To include uh, head and neck braces. Fucking hell. Over how long a period? From about age of 10 probably to age of about 13 what a nightmare that's more braces than prime ministers in that short short period of time true i hadn't even thought of that oh right of your bad history of dental care when we were discussing this and my disbelief in dentists i mean i believe they exist i just don't believe them you don't believe that there shouldn't be nhs dental care you think there should be more nhs dental care? yes yes i agree Polly Howard again speaks of this in Tales of Old Norfolk, not NHS dental care. She speaks of Messenger Monsey's unruly approach. She says, in his approach to his own dental care, he was certainly unusual. And it's strange because he was a doctor mm. and he had many acquaintances who were also doctors right. who could probably have helped him. And given him a uh, second opinion or whatever it might yeah. have been. Uh, given him some anaesthetic. Perhaps performed some proper surgical procedures. procedures. She does say, though, that Monzi, in approaching his own dental care, you know, in taking it upon himself, yeah. was not alone at the time because a lot of people at the time were having to do their own dental care because there were Again. no dentists. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's so topical. What do you think of as the classic home dental care? Oh, uh, tying a bit of string around a wobbly tooth and tying the other end to a door handle and slamming the door. Yeah, so that that's <laughs> did a he classic. Do that? Well, no, he didn't do that, but people were doing it. Right. And then I thought, did people really do this? I don't know. I mean, it always used to be like a, a joke when you were a kid, I mean, if you had a wobbly tooth, didn't it? Yeah. So I thought, did people do this? Hmm. And I found they're still doing it, but there's a really weird. So you know, sometimes there's a, a weird internet craze comes yeah on youtube and the like i think it's tiktok these days my tiktok these days well this was the mid 2010s that this craze arose. oh okay right yeah um and so what this was was Probably on Vine. weirdly a craze of youtube videos of parents mm. doing it to their children's baby teeth to like pull the baby teeth out right. and there's loads of youtube videos 
of parents tying like a bit of like a thin twine cotton. or something yeah. yeah like a cotton at the base of the baby tooth when it's wobbly and then doing the slamming of the door and out pops the tooth right so did you watch them i don't need to watch that many no like, but you watched some well I, <laughs> I watched one to check it was real but isn't that odd don't you yeah. think that's odd i don't know i can kind of see how it's the kind of thing that in this strange era of technology people will harken back to as having been something that they heard yeah as a kid and then all of a sudden there's a, a almost like a contagion to try and prove it I don't know. and i suppose it's quite fun when the tooth flies out and did the tooth fly out in the instances well, the you watched? Tooth i always imagine of... it would be terribly ineffectual well that's exactly what i thought because i thought realistically in that circumstance i suppose if you've got a wobbly tooth a child's wobbly tooth is about to come out anyway, fine. Mm. But if you've got a bad tooth... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surely more likely is the bit of string just comes off the tooth. Yeah. Maybe you have a terrible wrenching, but the tooth stays in. Maybe the door handle comes off. I guess perhaps off. in those days the uh, gums were less grippy than they are today. <laughs> <laughs> if the rot had set in yeah. many years before and the tooth will just pop out of its socket, maybe. I once lost a tooth in a Rolo. Right, did e- you? Eating a, a Rolo. Was it? It was a, a wobbly though. A, a baby tooth, a wobbly, a baby wobbly tooth, one. Yeah. And uh, then I just had a tooth embedded inside a Rolo. You didn't swallow it. No, no, I didn't. But I did. I think probably eat the chocolate off the outside of it before uh, handing it over to the tooth fairy. <laughs> that would have been mucky under your pillow, otherwise, wouldn't it? <laughs> a mucky, chocolatey, yeah. melty mess mm. for the tooth fairy to find. I think I swallowed one once. Really? And then I was sad because I was like, "Well, now the tooth fairy can't come." Yeah, what a capitalist. Because I've just swallowed down the... But I didn't get given real money. No, chocolate money. No, I got irony. money. I got like old shillings. Oh. Not shillings. What's... Sm- Drop bit. Yeah. And then mum gave me like a, a little metal, like looked like a little tiny post box. Oh, yeah. And you posted them in. Post your threatening bits in. And kept them. So I couldn't spend any of my tooth fairy money. I must still have that somewhere. I wouldn't have got rid of that. The special post box of teeth Ironically, those coins are now probably worth thousands. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. Another common method apparently was to use a pair of pliers. Yeah, well, yeah, again, in the uh, in the early 2020s home dentistry uh, Oh, God. And then examples. either you could ply out your own teeth or you just get Somebody a family a member to ply them out for you. Horrible. Quite horrible. Oh, yeah. I remember being told by somebody, and I've never quite been able to determine whether this is true or not, that if you have your wisdom teeth out under general anaesthetic, mm. you will quite often wake up with a bruised chest. And that oh, is- God, because they've knelt on you. Yeah. Ah! But again, I, I don't know if The doctor's true. knelt on you to ply out the teeth. Yeah. Wow. Shall I- I'm going to ask my dentist next time I go. <laughs> I feel like get- we're on quite good terms out. now. <laughs> That's an insult to dentistry. Now, Messenger Monzi being a man of his own ways. He wasn't just going to do a boring old doorknob, was no. he? Oh, so he's got a tooth that's got to come out. It sounds like he did it more than once, but <laughs> I, I don't know. So he wanted to do his own thing. He liked to use an approach involving, we might say even more unlikely, a gun. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds right. absurd, so prepare yourself. Okay. And listeners, prepare yourselves for this absurdity. So Monzi would start in the traditional manner. He would tie a thin piece of cotton or string. He would tie it around the bad tooth. Mm -hmm. Now things take a turn, though. The other end would be tied not to a door handle, but around a bullet. (laughs) And then he put the bullet into his gun. And then pow, he shot the gun, the bullet flew out. And so did the tooth. And the tooth was ripped from the mouth. Well, I mean, that's probably is better than a door slamming. 
As Howitt puts it, the tooth flew from his gum like a cork from a champagne bottle. I can imagine exactly the scene. Pop! And apparently he used to do this trick with friends present. Right. And you can oh, see why friends teeth. <laughs> you can see why people might find it entertaining. Yeah. Shooting a gun's always fun, right? And then a tooth's flying out as well. <laughs> it's the opposite of the old uh, catching the bullet in your teeth trick. Maybe like spumes of blood would also spare yeah, from sure messenger onesie's mouth. So anyway, it was a popular like a party trick. I can't believe that he did it that many times. No, I mean, presumably he didn't do it if he didn't also have a tooth that needed coming out. But I bet loads of teeth needed to come out in those days. I think dental hygiene was very poor. So that was a thing that he did. But now things take a bit of a downturn. Lord Godolphin, Messenger Monzi's patron, Mm. died in 1766. None of the other London types would offer him lodgings. Oh, no. Because he'd, he'd he'd made some enemies... And it seems more like he didn't really have any true friends. He just kind of had people that thought he was kind of fun and amusing, which is a bit sad for him. His daughter Charlotte was busy with her own life. She had lived elsewhere in London, but she had a really big family apparently. So she couldn't take him in. So he had to move into Chelsea Hospital and they did have some lodgings for for their doctors. But he didn't care for it and nor did his colleagues care much for him. It was a bit of a lonely end for old Monzi. He died at the age of 95. That's not bad going, is it? Not in bad the, at what, all. 18th century? On Boxing Day of 1788. Cripes. He requested in his will that his body should be dissected by either Foster or Crookshank, who I assume to Friends be... Friends I assume them to be notable London doctors oh, of the day. Yes. And he said that they must dissect him and they were tasked with finding out what was wrong with his heart arteries and kidneys. I mean, I would say at the age of 95, probably just knackered, right? I know, but he did specify heart, arteries and kidneys. And then, this is from his will, the rest of my carcass may be put into a hole or crammed into a box with holes and thrown into the Thames at the pleasure of the surgeon. (laughs) Was that de rigueur? Do what you like, he said with the rest. I think he he was just like, don't care. Wow. He didn't care, you know, he wasn't like, I must have a fine funeral and all this. He said, But he also didn't care that he was essentially uh, polluting London's no. main waterway. He thought London was going to ruin anyway. Put into a hole or crammed into a box with holes. So that was his will. Mind you, was the Thames salt water then? I think the Thames was salt water then, so Probably. it maybe preserved him. <laughs> But he would be in a just in a box of time. He'd be all in bits, probably. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, yes. He certainly wouldn't have any kidneys. No. There's no report on what they found. I think you're probably right. He was just very old, <laughs> wasn't he? 95. He also wrote his own epitaph, which read, What the next world may be, never troubled my pate. If not better than this, I beseech thee, O fate, when the bodies of millions fly up in a riot, to let the old carcass of Monzi lie quiet. He must have been very happy when he came up with that. <laughs> It's probably what he spent like the last 20 years of his life doing, wasn't it? <laughs> well, he was in Chelsea Hospital yeah. like for about 20 years Composing after Lord Godolphin died. So he just was writing up that lovely epitaph. Yeah, it's quite good. When the bodies of millions fly up in a riot, let the old carcass of Monzi lie quiet. And that's the end of Dr. Messenger Monzi. What a fellow. I know. What a funny old fellow. Um, and that's the end of our eccentric story. What is his legacy? I don't really know that there is much of one. <laughs> I don't think that his approach to dental care <laughs> caught on. Arguably, he was right that we're all infamous, dissolute scoundrels. Only the London lot. So he would probably have been quite pleased to see that come to pass. That's the end. We'll be back next time, though. And next time we have got 
it's again, it's Norfolk actually next time, but it's more of a tale of murder and foul deeds. More of it actually set in Norfolk. Yes, all in Norfolk. Murder and foul deeds. That's what's coming up next time. But I hope you enjoyed this little shorty. I hope you enjoyed the story of strange old Dr. Messenger Monzi. Thanks, Chris. No, thank you. Thanks, Garin Gimble, for this salty sea gin. And thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>